Greetings, friends, and welcome back to Rounding the News. I am your host, Liam Sturgis, and this is our weekly news roundup presented by Rounding the Earth. Today, I'm going to break down the issues into six categories. Health, legal, economy, geopolitics, environment, and culture. I do this in part because of something I noticed about the COVID skeptic crowd uh, about a year ago, around mid-2021. Not everyone pulls from the same sources. This is a good thing, of course, as there are simply way too many people and outlets reporting on, well, every possible topic that they could report on. Accuracy and veracity of reporting may vary, but even limiting oneself simply to mainstream or institutional channels still far exceeds the bandwidth of any human being. Ain't enough time for that, as we say. But it's, it's not just sources, of course, that are important to vary. It's also the topics. Rounding the Earth was started to fill a gap in knowledge around COVID-19 and Bitcoin, but it's becoming clearer every day to those with eyes to see that each area of our lives is connected in a way that can only be ignored at our own risk. These six categories are by no means all-encompassing, but they do seem to cover the bases for now. After the usual rundown of the week's highlights, now arranged into these categories, I'll spend a bit more time on the main story. Let's try it. Okay, so rounding the earth, this is the substack. That is the core of this enterprise and the main place you're going to want to go. Now, for the first story, I wish I could tell you that the institutional media is starting to address some of the more absurd aspects of the bivalent booster rollout, as was covered last week in this mousetrap episode. But if I did say that, I'd be exaggerating. The following is an image of the new recommended number of doses that will be actually required of everyone every three months or so. By my count, that adds up to around 6.2 doses, or 6.4 if you count the shadow on the, on the one to the far right. Um, there's a joke in there somewhere. <laughs> so, annual pandemic boosters forever. The Atlantic, in their coverage, went with the old one-two punch approach. Are we really getting COVID boosters every year forever? Yes, author Jacob Stern immediately clarifies. Prepare yourself for a lifetime of fall vaccine campaigns. Let's call that a yikes. In other words, I quote him now, your pandemic booster is about to become as routine as your physical exam. More or more to the point, your flu shot. One more health-related task has been added to your calendar, and it's likely to remain there for the rest of your life. Well, thank goodness we have Jacob Stern to lay out how our medical choices shall be moving forward. Just going to make sure to see if we are live on Rumble. Looks like we are. Fantastic. Okay. Uh, and this is where you're going to want to make sure you uh, also review the show notes uh, at the Substack link in the description because I have some funny memes peppered throughout. Uh, there's one of Dr. Evil. Are we safe yet? Okay. But wait, what's this? <gasps> Dissenting voices, perhaps, in the uh, narrative within the ranks. This is heresy, I say. 
maybe we should wait for human trial data before treating this like the flu shot. Mm. Look, they said it, not me. There could be problems associated with permanently injecting gene therapy into humans who absolutely do not need it or even understand what they're taking. Apparently, the rationale for doing this comes from the flu shot, which operates on the same basis of simply swapping in the new strain without testing on humans first. Of course, those haven't been gene therapy, unless something happened covertly. Flu shots have traditionally been actual vaccines. A little bit different than swapping in artificial gene sequences manufactured by a CIA-linked startup based on a Department of Defense-funded bioweapon. For more on that, see Whitney Webb's investigative report on National Resilience, the biopharmaceutical company that is manufacturing the Omicron booster mRNA uh, and actually a bit of the mRNA before this new booster as well. So look, from Medscape's coverage on the flu COVID treatment debacle, Quote, comments from the White House this week suggesting a once a year COVID-19 shot for most Americans, just like your annual flu shot, were met with backlash from many who say COVID and influenza come from different viruses. <gasps> Breaking news and required different schedules. Remarks from capitulation to too little data hit the airwaves and social media. It's a bit of a rhyme in there. Some, however, agree with the White House vision and say that asking people to get one shot in the fall instead of periodic pushes for boosters will raise public confidence and buy-in and reduce consumer confusion. Except what the heck? That, that's what I'll say. What the heck? This was never supposed to be more than one or two shots, depending on which one you chose. I'll even accept that some people assumed they'd need a booster, like other shots but one every three months as it is currently, or even one per year of these COVID shots is the epitome of a scam. That bothers me. Yeah. Uh, it's not just that though. Need, need, well, it's funny. I wrote needless. Needless COVID-19 vaccines in progress. That's a bit of a Freudian slip. Needle-less is what I meant to write in my notes. As you can see, first needle-free COVID vaccines are on the way. Now look, for the record, I don't enjoy needles at all. However, that has never stopped me personally from taking shots that I agreed were worthwhile. Quick asterisk. I'm now beginning to question the wisdom of that, but that's not the topic for today. My point is that needle fear is certainly real, but I don't think that's what's stopping folks from lining up to receive their intravascular blessing, as I've coined it as of today. In any case, Global News reports, quote, a nasal version of the COVID-19 vaccine has been approved in India, while regulators in China have also cleared an inhalable booster option administered throughout the month. Oh, sorry, through the mouth. Yeah, I totally misread my words there. Not throughout the month, although at this rate, who knows? This is a really novel and unique approach to vaccination, said Dr. Fiona Smale, professor of infectious and medical mycobiology at McMaster University up here in Canada. 
The COVID pandemic has pushed a lot of researchers now to think about different ways of giving vaccines that in the long run may be more effective. Smail is leading the clinical trial authorized by Health Canada for two new adenovirus vector <laughs> adenovirus vector based COVID-19 vaccines that can be administered by inhalation. Health Canada has also authorized a clinical trial for a single-dose intranasal vaccine developed by Altimune, a U.S. biopharmaceutical company. Okay, so that's three, if I'm counting right. In addition to the one in China and India and all that, there's three ones that you breathe in. Adenoviral vector, which is the same thing as the AstraZeneca and Janssen shots we've talked about before. All right. Well, I return to the question. If the COVID-19 vaccines are safe and effective and the hesitant are the minority... Why are companies continuing to roll out new and improved versions of the vaccine? There's a genuine discussion, to be fair, to be had about the, the, uh, about the nasal cavity being the more appropriate place to present the antigen, in this case, the spike protein, because that's where you'd be infected by it and generate the more proper immune response, right? It's a respiratory virus, you know, um, but remember the spike protein on which all of these are based still is no bueno and should be avoided. In other words, hashtag stop the shot. Although if it's an inhalable one, let's make it hashtag stop the vape. We can hijack that one. Okay. Now this I thought was funny. There's a five-year plan for monkeypox. No, not in that emergency preparedness pandemic planning conspiracy theory sense, no. But at least somebody is preparing for the, for the likelihood that monkeypox will be around for a little while. So this is an interesting market research report that you can, you can buy. A single user license is 3,500 US dollars. So, I mean, maybe we can buy it and share. Quote, the United Kingdom monkeypox therapeutics market is projected to register growth at a formidable rate during the forecast period of 2023 to 2027. The market growth can be attributed to the rising incidences of monkeypox in the country and expanding population with weak immunity. Why is the population with weak immunity expanding? Someone should buy the book and tell me. I return to the quote. Major players operating in the United Kingdom monkeypox therapeutics market are Chimerics UK Limited, Sega Technologies Incorporated, Emergent Biosolutions UK Limited, Bavarian Nordic, Mylan, Olon, Tiva, among others. Okay, so we're going to move into the, the legal section now. Uh, just go through this quickly. Citizen versus state, a discussion with Carl Harrison. Matthew and I sat down for a roundtable discussion with Carl Harrison, who I have had the pleasure of spending time with in person, and I'm already arranging another coffee date with um, once he gets back from Ontario, which you can hear more about in the episode. We've even quietly, Carl and I, been working behind the scenes to help strategize legal efforts, which is the only thing I can say on that note. Read Matthew's article on the conversation uh, at uh, roundingtheearth.substack.com and watch the video if you haven't yet. It's quite awesome. 
Now's a good time to remind folks that if you want to help support the show on the Rumble live stream on the right side of the video, there's a live chat where you can drop Rumble rants, which are essentially paid comments. And if you do that, it goes towards uh, not just me and my series, but the entire Rounding the Earth venture, which is a small team of very enthusiastic, um, passionate researchers of uh, all kinds of people. And uh, we want to do more stuff like this. And there's an exciting announcement to come. But if you want to support the show, you can drop a Rumble rant. You can also do it on YouTube with a super chat. Um, and on Rockfin, you can give a $5 tip. So thank you for allowing me to remind you of that. Um, now, in the news, we had some bad news here in my province of British Columbia. BC judge dismisses four vaccine passport complaints in a move that both shocked and disappointed a Supreme Court judge in the Canadian province of British Columbia has rejected four complaints fighting against vaccine passports. Or vaccine vaxports, as I'm now going to call them for no reason. From the Epic Times, quote, Chief Justice Christopher Hinkson ruled in one of the cases that Dr. Bonnie Henry, the provincial health officer, had properly followed available scientific research and BC's public health guidelines in advising the government to mandate vaccination for healthcare workers, according to the Vancouver Sun, which is visible here. The second case Hinkson rejected was a challenge to the province's vaccine passport system on the grounds that it discriminated against disabled people who were at higher risk of suffering adverse effects from COVID-19 vaccines. Hinkson's third ruling was also related to the uh, passport system as an individual challenged that it offended his right to liberty in an arbitrary manner. Hinkson's fourth dismissal was against three British Columbia residents who alleged that the province did not provide effective access to medical vaccination exemptions. One of the three suits was filed by, or the four suits, one of the, one of the four suits was filed by a group called the Canadian Society for the Advancement of Public Policy, who expressed their disappointment at the ruling. In a nutshell, we lost. I am sorry, wrote Kip Warner in the status update section of the website. Despite all this, Dr. Henry was not awarded costs, and we believe we may have grounds to appeal, Kip says. Concurrently, our healthcare workers' petition and class proceeding continue to move forward. The class proceeding is the big one, and that is still good to go. On the healthcare workers' side, there's been other unrelated progress that I'm not covering today, but good news. Okay. Now, finally, Alex Jones is back in court for the second of two major proceedings related to accusations of defamation surrounding claims he made about the Sandy Hook tragedy. Both this Connecticut trial and the Texas trial that preceded it are hearings about damages only as both judges ruled Jones guilty by summary judgment. In other words, he was not allowed to even have a trial to allow a jury to decide if he was in fact guilty. I'm still gathering the facts and shaping my opinion on this, helped along by an excellent in-depth commentary on the issue, courtesy of Viva Fry and Robert Barnes, Barnes being someone who formerly represented Alex in an earlier part of this uh, Sandy Hook process. 
So I highly recommend watching that. And the link to that and everything else is in the show notes, which is available at the Substack link, which should be the top of the description. Okay, moving into the economic side of things. Let's see here. I want to share another commentator who I turn to occasionally for an alternative perspective on the day-to-day of the American economy. Gregory Manorino. I can't vouch for him, uh, nor anyone else I cite, unless I specifically say that I do vouch for them. But I've found his analysis to be both interesting and relevant. Here's his video from this morning. I highly recommend you check it out. But a couple interesting things. Manorino says, and this is not new, that we're already in a depression as the pressure on the middle class continues to grow. Quote, this is him saying, remember, you're a terrorist if you don't trust your government. (sighs) To those who don't remember what that refers to, write in the comments, because I will address it in more detail if I need to. So here are some highlights from his coverage for today. Number one of five. One, banking giant Goldman Sachs issued a warning. Let me pull this up to its presumably high dollar clients that the stock market, specifically the S&P 500, could be about to take Another huge plunge following yet another shocking inflation report. Item number two, FedEx scared the markets by reporting that it was shutting stores and offices down as well as halting new hires as demand slumps, leading the company's shares to suffer their worst drop in decades. Item three, housing affordability reaches its lowest level in 37 years. Next, number four, is cryptocurrencies take a hit as Ethereum undergoes a merge, switching blockchain verification systems from proof of work to the more energy efficient proof of stake, in the words of the World Economic Forum. And this is indeed the first time I've cited the World Economic Forum's policy discussion, though I'm not I'm not saying I in any way agree with it, but this was, I thought, a, a decent brief explanation of what this Ethereum merger is. And lastly, of course, true to, true to form, Biden threw a party at the White House to celebrate inflation reduction, even as inflation hit a worse than expected 8.3%. The stock market tumbled and stubbornly high prices for food and housing continue to slam American households, writes the New York Post. All right, moving on to geopolitics. Ooh, that's a word I haven't said very much. There still may be some political solutions. There may be. If more elected officials come forward with the integrity that Liam Madden seems to show, there may yet be hope for the American electoral system. Madden won, and uh, actually, he ran and won as an independent candidate in the Republican primary in the state of Vermont. Read Matthew's article on roundingtheearth.substack.com discussing their talk, and then you're going to want to watch the full discussion on Rumble if you haven't already. They get into some very interesting discussion on the DMED investigation that matthew continues to undergo all right eyes in the skies i want to share another resource that i turn to monkey works i don't know much about him but 
I understand him to be a former military contractor turned YouTuber with quite a large community surrounding him. Everyone's got their gig and he, his is using open source intelligence from flight tracking systems to analyze the geopolitical landscape of the United States and the rest of the planet. He covers topics including the military conflict in Ukraine, the ebb and flow of tension in the Middle East, the supply chain, the Great Reset, and a strongly, admittedly, Republican-slash-Trump-leaning political analysis. So there, there's his bias. Full credit to him, okay? I pulled a number of stories from this stream, from his stream from earlier today, um, as well as from Gregory Manorino's. I recommend checking them both out. Uh, they may be your cup of tea. They may not. Um, so yeah, so this is, this is his stream from earlier today. Okay. Now into the environment, grab your popcorn folks, because it's about to get much scarcer. Maybe. So it would seem that Argentina has been shrinking its position in corn farming since at least 2019 and the droughts of the past two summers have not helped replenish the dwindling harvests at all. From Reuters. Let's see. That's Reuters. Okay, I quote, Argentina's main farming zones are facing the driest conditions in around 30 years, agricultural and weather experts say, raising fears about a new great drought and stalling planting of corn in the world's number three exporter of the grain. Argentina is the world's top exporter of processed soy oil and meal and an important producer of corn, wheat, and barley. Hold those in your head for a bit. This is one of the most complex situations we have seen in recent decades. We have to say that it is the worst planting scenario for corn in the last 27 years. Christian Russo, chief agronomist, <laughs> thought I said antagonist for a second. Chief agronomist at the Rosario Grains Exchange told Reuters, the current scenario is discouraging, he said. Heisenek, uh, not sure who that is, argued uh, or added that farmers need a miracle. The only thing that can get us out of this is something disruptive, something that no one is seeing. It's the only thing that can change the landscape, which is alarming, he said. I'm really not a fan of the idea of something disruptive being undertaken. Whatever in the world could be done, please keep it out of the hands of the government or their NGO cronies. Think of the children. Now, soy appears to be the overall the new direction for these farmers, a transition with which also was already in progress in 2019. There was a hoarding of the alternative protein beans that soy are in 2021, apparently as a hedge against the floundering peso, which was their national currency. Still is, I think. <laughs> as of this week, however, the Argentine government persuaded these farmers to sell off their product through favorable foreign currency exchange rates. So if the corn harvest is continuing to shrink, and farmers are depleting their soy reserves. What does this mean for, quote, the world's top exporter of processed soy oil and meal and an important producer of corn, wheat, and barley? Surely wheat and barley will pull through. Right? Uh, 
Except the wheat's also drying up. Uh Uh-oh. No word yet on barley. I looked into it and only got ads for beer. So, okay, now this one, this is a first for me. We're going to move into culture now. For those who don't know, there's a show on Disney+, Plus, which is Disney's Netflix-like streaming service, which admittedly is is pretty decent. It's got some good stuff on it. There's a show called She-Hulk, based on the character of the same name. She is legit as a superhero, okay, in my opinion, and is a great superhero in her own right. She came out in the 1970s and has had some great stories in the comics. She's not just a ripoff of the Hulk, is what I'm trying to say. Even though it it basically is, it's it, it, the character it's, it herself is is a good character in the comics. Unfortunately, though, her show isn't working out as smoothly as Marvel fans like me would have liked. There's an interesting cultural dialogue going on in response to this controversy, but I'm not sure it's quite getting at the real issues, or at a minimum, people aren't hearing each other. She-Hulk attorney at law currently holds an 87% score on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, while the audience has granted it a mere 39% take. I found the discourse around this compelling. To some, this low audience rating is due primarily to review bombing, where people, I suppose, leave unfair one-star reviews in order to intentionally bring down the rating of the series. This is what Direct had to say. Quote, how fans received this particular proclaimed woke narrative, that being a powerful woman, dominated online conversation in ways that were both constructive and misogynistic. But given how prior MCU review bombings were directed to culture or related to cultural, political and societal opinions, there's no doubt that misogyny played a significant part in She-Hulk's blitzkrieg of one star reviews. Um, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Uh, Readers of that article shared some counter arguments in the comments. I'll read them now. This is just patently stupid. She-Hulk is bad because it's bad. Let's not overanalyze it. People got into the MCU because it offered an escape. Now everything has to be... Uh, sorry, uh, Matthew Crawford. Okay, I'll, I'll read in a second. It's good that Matthew's on here live. It's exciting. This is just patently... Yeah, yeah. People got into the MCU because it offered an escape. Now everything has to have a message and a lesson about X versus Y or whatever BS the director has a misguided passion for. When people stop heading preached at, getting preached at from TV and movies, they'll start watching again, plain and simple, says JD. Can we stop calling giving any negative reviews, review bombing, it's disingenuous. When a show sets out from the start to vilify a huge demographic of their audience, how can they be surprised when those audience members don't enjoy it? Said Matt Collison. And last but not least, the review bombing isn't misogynistic. The show itself is. I happen to agree, but I won't get into that in too much detail today. But Firstly, the show producers forced the showrunners to change the protagonist from being a big buff hulk of a woman to being slim and sexy. Yeah, they did that. The fans wanted big and hulk, not slim and sexy. And the studio now claims that it is that audience that is misogynistic. 
And the first episode goes on to empower a woman by means of tearing down her male predecessor and celebrating the selfishness of the protagonist. Awful, lazy writing and clear misogyny on the part of the studio. The review bombs are deserved. I don't agree with the rest of that. And I also don't... I, I think they're breaking down the female character. I think they're making... They're not doing justice to the female character. You know, the male characters, I agree, are also being treated as caricatures, but that's not my main issue with it. Regardless, further interesting discussion on this topic can be found in the following video by a gentleman who I don't watch, but um, I watch this video uh, called The Quartering. I don't agree with all of his points, but I do think the conversation is an important one. Um. And as Matthew points out, there is no way in the world that the critics do not understand how they diverge from everyone else. There is most definitely a bias in the critics as a whole. Uh, I think it, it's just, it seems pretty much self-explanatory. Uh, well, exactly. It seems obvious at this point that media enterprises are working to shift blame for many social problems. I completely agree it's almost like the shots oh people aren't complaining like scientists from harvard and uh and john hopkins they're not complaining about the shots and warning about them because they're qualified to do so and they present a sound argument they're doing it because they're anti-vaxxers okay so then anybody who criticizes the shots becomes an anti-vaxxer that's a, an oversimplified explanation of the argument, but I think the same thing happens here. If you don't like She-Hulk, well, you must be misogynistic then. Mm. No. <laughs> anyway, okay, I'm running out of time here. And before we jump into our final and main story for the day, I'd like to take a brief moment to hear from our sponsor, and I'd like to play the uh, video. It's been a little while, so here you go. Blood of tyrants. The blood of tyrants, don't you know, is a Merlot with a rich Garnet color with flavors of black cherries, plums, figs with a soft and smooth finish with its crisp, crisp acidity and ripe fruit flavors. This wine is an easy match for any occasion. In the words of Thomas Jefferson, the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of tyrants. Metaphorically, of course, as always, purchase a bottle like this one. Using code EARTH to, in the words of Matthew Crawford, get a few bucks knocked off your order. <laughs> Five bucks specifically. And you can click, uh, there's a nice blue button that I included in the Substack uh, about it. But yeah, this is just proof that I have indeed finished one of the two bottles. I'm going to save the other one. So let's see if we can also become the best top rated affiliates for September. Because we were for August and that was great. Okay, now to our main and final story. Biden orders the U.S. government to focus on bio-industry initiative. U.S. President Joe Biden issued an executive order on Monday, September 12, calling on the government to direct substantial resources to the development and implementation of the new bio-economy. While the New York Post's coverage 
of the order paints it as primarily a funding operation for purposes such as agriculture and mining. It fails to address the substantial portions describing the mass collection and analysis and commercialization of genetic information and other human-related biodata, to use their words. Now, an excellent... Where did I hide it? Oh, no. Well, an excellent summary of the order and its broader implications can be found at the last American Vagabond, which, ah, there it is. <laughs> Where Ryan Christian pulls this together in context with the web of related enterprises and world events underway in the wake of the COVID-19 crisis. Link in the show notes. There are two videos that he did on the topic. But I'll do my best very quick to give you a rundown of what the order says. First, this is a whole-of-government operation. So, out of the myriad of issues that the Biden administration is facing and is tasked with solving, this one seems to be the cream of the crop, requiring a whole-of-government approach to getting the bioeconomy underway. Indeed, the order details roles for national security, the economy, domestic and foreign policy, budget management, and science and biotechnology directors from agencies, including this entire list, Department of Agriculture, Department of Commerce, Defense, Education, Energy, Health and Human Services, Homeland Security, Labor, State, the Environmental Protection Agency, the Food and Drug Administration, the General Services Administration, National Air, NASA, okay, NASA, um, National Institute of Standards and Technology, National Science Foundation, National Security Council, the Office of the Attorney General, Office of the Director of National Intelligence, and the United States Trade Representative. That is a big team. Those are some of the most powerful people and, and bodies in the world. And they cover a lot of bases. So that's point number one. Point number two, the scope of this bioeconomy is massive. People are now well aware that biodefense and biological warfare have been a significant industry around the world for decades. Especially, as we now know, in the United States global network. While this new executive order certainly addresses the military aspects of the bioeconomy, its declared scope expands far beyond simple warfare. Let's go to section one, policy. Yep, I had it, and then I jumped too far. Section one, policy. It is the policy of my administration to coordinate a whole-of-government approach to advance biotechnology and biomanufacturing towards innovative solutions in health, climate change, energy, food security, agriculture, supply chain resilience, and national and economic security. How are these things related, folks? It's not entirely clear, but the legal framework is being laid through executive order, through decree, to affect all of these areas with the same overarching biotechnologies. Biden's writers... I don't think Biden drafted this, let's just say, make no bones about the fact that COVID-19 was used as a pretext to regulatory procedures never before used, including in the form of COVID-19 genetic vaccines. Let me just find that the COVID-19 pandemic 
as demonstrated, the vital role of biotechnology and biomanufacturing in developing and producing life-saving diagnostics, therapeutics, and vaccines that protect Americans and the world. Although the power of these technologies is most vivid at the moment in the context of human health, biotechnology and biomanufacturing can also be used to achieve our climate and energy goals, improve food security and sustainability, secure our supply chains, and grow the economy across all of America. Now, there's certainly a lot of money to be made here for American companies. So the economic part is low-hanging fruit. We all get that. You can imagine how the agricultural and food aspects of this work, genetically modified organisms or GMOs are still around and still being pushed hard by enterprising folks like Bill Gates. And hey, we're going to need to do something about those poor corn stalks in Argentina, right? <sighs> Okay, next point. Genetics are the clear focus, all right? Let me find this passage for you real quick. Ah, very good. We need to develop genetic engineering technologies and techniques to be able to write circuitry for cells and predictably program biology in the same way in which we write software and computer programs. Unlock the power of biological data, including through computing tools and artificial intelligence, and advance the science of scale-up production while reducing the obstacles for commercialization so that innovative technologies and products can reach markets faster. Oof. This is that Harari spiel of surveillance under the skin also. I completely agree with you. That is referring to Yuval Noah Harari. And um, he has some interesting ideas. Let's just put it that way. I, if you happen to have a link for people to pursue further on that topic, if you could put it in the chat, that'd be awesome. Not an intelligence in the clouds, but an artificial intelligence. Internet of things is here. And it's funny because that's what this is. That's what this is saying. And that was, I don't know, it's a weird feeling seeing this actually articulated in a presidential memo. Uh, memo's the wrong term, uh, an executive order. But this is a big one, okay? What I just read before, the, gen the COVID-19 shots are genetic engineering. And there is early evidence to suggest that they are rewriting the circuitry of our cells. Moderna has explicitly stated that their entire operation is all about programming people like computers. All the while, the Food and Drug Administration and its sister agencies have all but done away with obstacles to commercialization, given that they seem intent on forcing multiple toxic products onto the market with no reasonable explanation. Okay, section four. Data for the bioeconomy. In order to facilitate data for the bio. Ah, beautiful. In order to facilitate development of the United States bioeconomy, my administration shall establish a data for the bioeconomy initiative or the data initiative. Very creative. That will ensure that high quality, wide ranging, easily accessible, and secure biological data sets can drive breakthroughs for the United States bioeconomy. It then calls 
for a report that identifies the data types and sources to include genomic and multinomic information, multiomic, I should say, that are most critical to drive advances in health, climate, energy, food, agriculture, and biomanufacturing, as well as other bioeconomy-related R&D, research and development, along with any data gaps. Multiomic is a new word for me, that's for sure, and it's defined later in the report. Multiomic. There we go. The term multiomic information refers to combined information derived from data analysis and interpretation of multiple omics measurement technologies to identify or analyze the roles, relationships, and functions of biomolecules, including nucleic acids, proteins, and metabolics. Me sorry, metabolites that make up a cell or cellular system. Omics, <laughs> omics with an M, are disciplines in biology that include genomics, transcriptomics, proteomics, and metabolomics. Remember that time that the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, so long ago, remember the time they scared everybody into swabbing the inside of their brain multiple times a week via PCR? The Gateway Pundit reported the following back in February. Remember that COVID-19 nose swab test you took? What happened to the swab? If it was or processed with a PCR test, there's a 10% chance that it ended up in a lab for genomic sequencing analysis. Now that was a quote from the CDC, in fact. Between the COVID-19 swabs and 23andMe, I'd say there's a lot of multiomic information that they can glean from it. <sighs> sure thing. They love talking about it on their WEF site. I completely agree. Hidden in plain sight. Data is the new oil. It's horrifying to delve into this stuff. Makes the Luddites and Kaczynski look sane. Now, Final part here. I'll end on, on this strange note. I was working on a separate project that had me researching National Resilience, the CIA-linked biomanufacturing company that I mentioned earlier in the video, with a great deep dive brought to you by Whitney Webb of Unlimited Hangout, um, which you should absolutely read. As I was listening to Ryan Christian, The Last American Vagabond's video, once again, that I showed earlier, uh, two nights ago, on the executive order, I realized there was a theme in common between the two. Protection of the biomanufacturing supply chain. This is from Whitney's article. National Resilience was founded relatively recently. In November 2020, it described itself as a manufacturing and technology company dedicated to broadening access to complex medicines and protecting biopharmaceutical supply chains against disruption. It has since been building a sustainable network of high-tech end-to-end manufacturing solutions with the aim to ensure the medicines of today and tomorrow can be made quickly, safely, and at scale. It further plans to reinvent biomanufacturing 
and democratize access to medicines, namely gene therapies, experimental vaccines, and other medicines of tomorrow. End quote from Whitney's article. Now, let's compare that to the language of Biden's executive order. This is a summary of relevant quotes when I looked up supply chain, command F, in the executive order. I found the following. These are, these are, I tried to keep them in context, but they're not the entirety of the paragraph that they come in. This strategy shall identify actions to mitigate risks posed by foreign adversary involvement in the biomanufacturing supply chain and to enhance biosafety, biosecurity, and cybersecurity in new and existing infrastructure. Hang on, I'm going to share my second screen over here so you can see what I'm looking at. Oh, no, that's just going to be me. Application window. Okay, here we go. Nice. All right. So this is what I read from, by the way. <clears throat> the second one here. The Department of Commerce shall address challenges in biomanufacturing supply chains and related biotechnology development infrastructure. Number three. The Department of Defense shall incentivize the expansion of domestic, flexible, industrial biomanufacturing capacity for a wide range of materials that can be used to make a diversity of products for the defense supply chain. So again, the idea that this has to do with the, um, you know, the defense industry as well. To support the resilience. There's that word. Of the United States biomass supply chain for domestic biomanufacturing and bio-based product manufacturing. And lastly, conduct horizon scanning to anticipate threats to the global bioeconomy, including national security threats from foreign adversaries acquiring sensitive technologies or data or disrupting essential bio-related supply chains and to identify opportunities to address those threats. For the sake of time, because I'm already 16 minutes over, I'll leave you to chew on that for the rest of the evening. Let me know in the comments section what you think about the executive order and what you see as being more or less significant in its contents and discussion. So um, let's leave it there. Thank you so much for watching. I have been Liam Sturgis. Uh, uh, you're going to want to go find me at www.liamsturgis.com or at the Liam Sturgis on Twitter. And of course, make sure you're subscribed to Rounding the Earth on YouTube, Rumble, Rockfin, BitChute, Brighteon, and become a paid subscriber of the Rounding the Earth Substack. Make sure to drop your super chats in the YouTube box, your Rumble rants in the Rumble box, and your Rockfin tips in the rockfin tip jar i suppose thank you so much ladies and gentlemen we will be back on monday there's already for the next three weeks matthew has one-on-one -on -one discussions scheduled with various guests and then we'll both be back on tuesday uh and then i'll be back the following friday you know the drill at this point thank you so much for being such wonderful supporters and i look forward to seeing you again shortly roundingtheearth.substack.com toodle pip